0: Have you thought about becoming a career coach, but not sure what it's really like? Not sure how to get started? Well, we've got you covered. Let's drop into this week's conversation of how to become a career coach. All right, everybody, welcome to the how to become a career coach podcast. I'm super excited to have our guest on today he is the founder of frable and i got a chance to look him over yesterday and even the past week and day before and i'm super interested to talk with him more from hearing about his story his business but really how the journey that he got to in becoming a career coach which i know you're all interested in hearing but also the insights and checking out all this great content they had online before we hit record we're talking about The video that he has on the very first page of his website, I was like, this is really highly produced. I'm super excited to talk to this guy. But also, both of us being more in the millennial type of generation, I felt (laughs) what I was telling him is I'm super excited because I wish I would have had that when I was starting my journey. So without further ado, definitely want to introduce our, our guest today, Alex Durand. Alex?
1: Hi, Phil. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here, excited to chat.
0: Yeah, of course. It's always such a pleasure. I was telling him before, but if you might not have heard on this podcast before, I like to think of these more as coaching jam sessions. So- I love that. It's, it's such a good analogy, but we get to like geek out on the creative aspects of coaching, but really how all of us got here and why we love it. And that's how I want to start this podcast. And my first question to you, which is what did you do before becoming a career coach?
1: Yeah, Philip, that's always a good place to start. So I was a 2008 recession kid. I went into my freshman year of college, I think not unlike you, I I think, right? Yeah. So 2008 was a freshman in college. And really all I cared about going into school was making a lot of money. You know, my big vision then was retiring by 40 and having the money to buy a Bugatti and a yacht. And basically, I just wanted to have a lot of money. (laughs) So I thought I wanted to do investment banking. Eventually, I ended up in accounting. I really like some of the early accounting classes. Just kind of fell ass forward into a summer internship at PwC between junior and summer for uh, PwC being one of the big four consulting accounting companies. So I actually interviewed for a group that I had no idea what it even did. It was in forensics is like the CSI of accounting. You know, it's pretty much as sexy as accounting can get. You basically (laughs) chase financial fraud investigations. Yeah. Uh, got a full time offer, so I went into senior year with a full time offer, and I thought that was my dream job. I was going to get to travel a lot because I'm um, uh, trilingual. They were gonna, they said they were gonna send me out internationally a bunch. So I graduate, go to work for PwC, and that's kind of where the epilogue of my coaching career really starts. I realize after about a year that I was never going to be the best what they did there. Mm -hmm. I worked with people who were highly motivated, highly intelligent, loved, a lot of them loved the lifestyle, being on the road, being world warriors, the hours, and they genuinely loved the forensics work that they did. And so it took me, I realized fairly early on that it took me an unnatural amount of of energy to be a quote-unquote hypo high performer and that that was going to be unsustainable, that I was always going to run with a low tank and the first kind of mini-aha was, okay, you got to figure out how do you find a space where you can run on more organic energy, where you don't have to constantly produce artificial energy to get hyped up or, or get, um, get motivated about the challenges. And so that's where I first, that's what I was doing before
0: uh, moving over into coaching. It's interesting because a lot of our listeners and where I find a lot of them come from is places where they've gotten to some point where they've achieved what they want, they've got a dream career, career or it, they found some success in some places. Yeah. And then they've hit that and they go, wait, this isn't what I sign up for, or this isn't what I want. And, you know, hearing a little bit about you before we hit record today, I thank you so much for sharing more about your story from just to bring everybody else in. It, it was very much, it seemed like kind of like a, a hard time in in that kind of transition but really that aha moment came from coming back to hey I've been having these types of conversations and these are the points that bring the energy and I find so many yeah. people that we talk to that's exact point of they literally can't stop having these conversations whether it's with family members coworkers, friends the uber driver the person at the grocery store all those kinds of things making that transition why Why did you want to become a coach in the first place?
1: Yeah, I think you touch on something important, which is that in some ways, all coaching is really about making the invisible story visible. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot more about that in the past few years. Really, all coaching starts at that inflection point where you realize something isn't working or something needs change. And there's an invisible story playing in the background to which we are normally moving too fast or don't have the skills to pay attention to or pri- life priorities get in the way. A lot of coaching, and for me, it started the same way. It was about trying to recognize that invisible story that was running in the background that sometimes other people were seeing but that I wasn't seeing. Mm-hmm. Basically, at PwC, I burnt out. I've talked about it before, but basically, I got depressed. I was on the road a lot. You know, There's only so many client dinners and free alcohol that will really get you uh, through being a road warrior, at least for me. Yeah. And, yeah, so I was depressed. I think I've, t- I've told the story before, but I was watching The Sopranos, and in season one of If You Haven't Watched The Sopranos, Tony Soprano is depressed, and he, like, won't get out of bed, and he ends up going to a therapist and stuff. And I was like, wow, I kind of feel like that guy does in my own little version of it. So I had basically had to figure out, like, am I depressed in spite of the job or because of the job or some combination of it or because I was burnt out. I didn't know that much about burnout at the time. Mm-hmm. And I feel like even in the past six, seven years that I've been doing this, we know a lot more about burnout than even we did five, six years ago. I was like, I have to confront this depression first and then see what comes after that. Because I couldn't tell if, you know, I didn't want to leave the job and then be depressed in a new chapter. Yeah. I couldn't really address the root. I didn't know what the root was. So I went to a therapist. Eventually, I told that therapist, you know, I'm feeling I'm having depressive thoughts, I'm having depressive moods. She recommended me, we did like a combination of psychotherapy and trying some antidepressants. Mm -hmm. So after a course of about six or eight months, I start to come out of the depression. I start to play around with ideas of what I might want to do next. And at that time, my dad had, you know, he's a lifelong learner, and he had just completed the Columbia University Executive Coaching Program, and I told him how I was struggling to figure out, I knew I wanted to leave PwC, I didn't know to what. He sent me this New York Times article that came out seven, eight years ago that was basically about how the age of coaching was getting younger, and the whole, the whole premise of the New York Times article was how much life do you have to live to be a coach, basically. Huh. Huh. That was really kind of an early Easter egg towards considering coaching, I then hired, he recommended a couple of people. I hired an executive coach who normally doesn't work with, didn't work with people uh, my age. I was 22 then. And about three months into that, I was like, I can do what this person is doing combined with the thought of it's a shame that only 50 or 60 year old, mostly men get access to this development and quality of coaching when they've had a whole lifetime of experiences and habits already built wouldn't it be amazing if this kind of developmental experience were available to people when their habits are are just forming? And, that, you know, the coach helped me make my invisible story visible. I had forgotten that when I was a sophomore in college, and this is not something I've shared before, but when I was a sophomore in college, I actually had the idea for a company called IEquate. And the whole idea of it, it was like between freshman and sophomore year, the whole mm-hmm. idea of it was basically uh, having a nonprofit where people who were lacking clarity in their career could come and get resources to make better, more confident decisions. Mm-hmm. So I like I gathered a few friends and tried to get it off the ground and went to a couple of those like um, startup boot camps where you like pitch your idea with fake money and see who yeah. who gives the investment and all that stuff. Yeah. And this was 2000. 2000- Nine. So like in the Northeast in 2009, we had a snowmageddon. It was a big snowstorm <laughs> that hit. And anyway, so I was leaving a boot camp. I had a boot camp right as that snowstorm was was happening. I pitched it. I had this one faux investor. Well, actually, he's a founder investor who was there on the panel. And he was like, mm-hmm. how much of your own money are you going to put into this venture? And I said, well, I don't have any money. I'm not going to put any any money into it. And he was like, well, how can you expect anybody to want to invest in you if you're not investing in yourself? So those memories like were invisible to me. I'd kind of forgotten about them over the years when I started working with the coach. That kind of episode started coming back. I grew up the, the son of an expat family, so we moved internationally a bunch. So change was my norm as a kid. Stability was not. I do a lot better in change than I do in stability. Mm. It, it's always a combination of nature and nurture, the things we learn and the things that are innate. And so as I was working with this executive coach and the therapist, and I had this whole gaggle of people really kind of helping me. I uh, January 1st, 2014, I was like, fuck, I really don't want to go back to work tomorrow. Yeah. It just became oppressive. I always had this image of riding the elevator for 30 or 40 years and feeling like that was more of a prison of my own making than anything else. Mm. And I just kind of had this bolt of lightning where I came up with uh, there was this idea for Frable, and originally then it was meant to service people in their first five, seven years out of school. And I had a hypothesis and I was like, okay, we're going to have three stages. And then, um, yeah, I put in my notice two weeks later, sold my car, bought an Ikea desk and a chair, just a couple, pulled all my savings. I was 23. I also, you don't know what you don't know at the time. Yeah. The The risk was pretty low. Yeah. Even though it felt high at the time. And I left. You know, I don't know that I recommend that strategy for everybody, mm. but with that particular where I was at that time and who I was at that time, I was never going to develop a side hustle. I don't have the discipline to do a side hustle. I have a lot of respect for people that mm. develop their side hustle. I'm somebody that needs no safety net to get out of bed and know that the, this thing is going to succeed or fail based on just free falling. Yeah. I just. Spent a couple of days writing like a two pager of what my philosophy and what my initial packages of services would be like. And I had these really pretentious names for like the phases, like the Da Vinci and the Gutenberg and the Picasso, which in hindsight Oh was, my gosh. And I had like so maybe funny. paintings for each one of the stages. Of <laughs> yeah. Like, here we go. Going to the Da
0: Vinci I so stage. Clever. I thought it was so clever.
1: I thought it was so clever. I thought like, nobody's ever thought of this before. This is going to be so amazing. But yeah, it was like two pages. I sent it out to some people, got some feedback, obviously, and eventually ended up on my one pager and I had those the names for those stages for an embarrassingly long
0: time. Did but you that's get feedback on those on those names by any?
1: A year later when I started to do the I did the Columbia University Executive Coaching Program during a presentation somebody was like you know those names are really beautiful but I don't know what that means to the stage like it was too abstract. Ah uh, gotcha gotcha. And one of the early lessons I one of the lessons I learned hard lessons I learned the first few years was doesn't matter how pretty something sounds to you if, if somebody reads it and they don't know what it means mm-hmm. then you're just writing for yourself you're not writing for an audience and you know copy for a website is, is not for you in the same way that a resume is not for you mm-hmm. they were inexpensive lessons and in hindsight it's easy to laugh at them but at the time they felt like they felt like such good decisions
0: I'm taking so many notes on like oh my okay I can go off in this way and go off this way and, and have so many interesting discussions to go but one of the biggest things for us as career coaches, we talk to so many people who maybe aren't as familiar with the space or yeah. who aren't into maybe the lingo or just as, as pumped as we are about it. So I always find we, we work with people in all of those different stages, right? Where they come to me and they go, Philip, you know, I've taken every single test out there that you can take from personalities. I know what these things mean to, yeah. I don't even know what a career coach does. That person also comes to me. We have to educate them too. And- yeah, um, for sure. I definitely want to go back because I have some more questions for you about, you know, making that leap. And do you do a side hustle? Do you, do you go all in? But I think before that, one of the biggest things, at least one of the biggest things that I'm taking away from you and your story is part of what we do as, as coaches. And part of, I feel like what we do for ourselves, because I find so many coaches have that story, right? Where they're, including myself, where we've kind of hit brick walls and we figure it out for ourselves, we have help along the way. And the people who I feel succeed in life or succeed in this life, they're really good at asking for help mm. and bringing in that help. And as our job as coaches, I, I feel like that's, that's part of our job, part of our duty in there. But I absolutely love just you and your skill and you bringing these invisible things and invisible feelings and making them visible. I very much appreciate that, but I think it's important for us as coaches always to share that story. Not only of like how it looked for us at the time, but really as you as a person, what it looked like for, because as one of my biggest strengths is I'm a relator, And I find that be able to connect with somebody on how scary it probably was and how like uh, the jump was, but like even at that early time in your career when you're having more of those depressive thoughts, how You know how you were personally struggling there too because it allows people to go that guy he knows what he's talking about but he Mm. i feel like he's been where i where i am Mm. and a little bit on that note to help our listeners when you were making that transition how did you know it was time to make that leap what was going on in your brain during that time if we can go all the way (laughs) all the way back to that time yeah it's not so much
1: about memory it's about how do you explain a kinesthetic experience, Mm -hmm. a psychosomatic experience? How do you explain what was going on in your body? Something I talk about with a lot of my clients and that I've been going back to more frequently is that our bodies are always ahead of our minds and our bodies are always always ahead of our brains. Mm -hmm. Our bodies are older vessels and they have their own wisdom. And so oftentimes we become disconnected from what our bodies are saying or our bodies are really ahead of where it takes our a little bit of time to get. So for me it was a physical experience of knowing when to make the the leap. I had spent enough time depressed to know what it felt to be flooded by a wave of exciting, challenging energy that was very different from the ill, stale heaviness of being depressed. Mm. So when I have this aha, I don't want to, I, you know, PwC is not for me anymore. I got to get out of here, and I have that 2014 lightning bolt. It was a physical experience. It's it's akin to a surge of adrenaline. You are getting a ton of ideas at once. You are getting a ton of energy around those ideas, and you just want to get started right away so the barrier to entry the barrier of energy entry of just like let's do this let's go Mm. for me just was like breaking a dam and then me just really riding the outpouring from that dam Mm. in the best possible way for me that initial energy lasted about two to three years Mm. and my holy shit what am i doing moment didn't really happen until like year three really yeah huh I think relationships to businesses are akin to relationships with girlfriends, partners, yeah. fiancés, spouses in the sense that they are stages. My honeymoon stage with my business lasted about 2 to 3 years. Yeah. And then there was like a cliff and I was like well, we can get to that. But essentially there was a there was a wall. I hit a wall. Mm. It took me about 2 to 3 years to hit that wall and then the anxieties of like is this going to work? What am I doing? Obviously at the same time all your friends are going through the normal corporate promotions and different tracks and you are your boss and there's no promotions and there's no performance reviews and you're learning to manage the feast or famine cycles of the first few years mm-hmm. and not taking them personally and internalizing them as somehow them being a reflection of you or your skill in that initial period i didn't really have fear to be honest it mm-hmm. took me a couple of years to get to the fear but also take it with a grain of salt Memory's tricky i've worked a lot of my own story yeah and i may have I'm a big believer in that, like, you, we have, our that self, I'm not that person anymore. Yep. And I talk. I refer to that person as, like, a different character in another book. Like, that's not me anymore. But I wrote that character's story, and yeah. I've done these interviews, and, and in, even in my own development, I may have saved as a new file over how I really felt
0: at that time. I love that analogy, save as. Yeah. It's so a-
1: so take it with a grain of salt is, as this is a story that is with me now. I may have saved over the fear that, that was there in the first few years, or yeah. at least in the first six months.
0: That's one thing, yeah, I want to get back to and really get into what that wall, that cliff, what that looked like for you, um, really the hardest part about it. But when we work with clients often, or even in, in these stages of opening up a business, but very much even in early days, it's we're adopting new identities, right? And I, mm-hmm. I find it's what got us here isn't going to get us there. Sure. These are the biggest points we, we work with people, but but often as coaches we go through them ourselves. So we know that we know these things. And so much of what I find in becoming a coach is that there's not necessarily a playbook out there, right? We Yeah. Uh, there's playbooks for some things. We can do trainings, we can do certifications, all those kinds of things. But for a lot of people that I talk to and even our listeners here, it's the act of calling yourself a coach. And for a lot of people, to call yourself a coach and to become a coach, you somewhat have to have this audacity of like, I feel like I know these things and I can then teach or coach these other people what to do with it. And so for a little bit, you put yourself out there, but you put yourself out there in many different ways that most people don't do, right? They'll follow a certain track or they'll they're go back to school and they'll do these certain things. But as coaches and especially coaches who will put up in their own businesses, it's a very new track and kind of a side tangent, but more of how I kind of see the future of coaching, but the future of how people will change careers and why we'll need coaches moving forward in the future because change is inevitable. If anything that we know, and we're currently recording this podcast during the COVID 19 crisis, uncertainty is definitely out there. So we must inherently get better at change. And we must do that by having the help of others, but having the help of others who've kind of been there, done that, and can see the light at the end of the tunnel or help people see the light at the end of the tunnel and have gone through those hardships. And that was more of my question to jump back to that for you is, what's been the hardest thing in becoming a coach? Mm, It's always the the good questions that make a pause.
1: I'm just gonna go with where my mind goes first. I, I have conflicting ideas about the noun of coach, of mm. clinging to the identity of coach. I use it on my website and I use it on LinkedIn because it helps algorithms, but I don't really refer to myself as a coach anymore. If I have to use a, a noun, I, I say intervener. I create interventions and systems, but I don't think the future of coaching is in the word coach per se. Huh. And we can touch on that later. That's but
0: super interesting, yeah, yeah, we'll definitely touch
1: I disagree with the premise that you become a coach. Mm. I think you are a coach, and you learn to accept that you that you are a coach. I don't see it in the developmental trajectory that we normally talk about in that adult learning models or that models in psychology talk about integrations of identity. I'll put it in the context of a framework. I'm a big believer in something that Gestalt psychology talks about, which is the paradox of change mm-hmm. and the paradox of change talks about. You don't become more of you by changing who you are. You become more of you by accepting what you are. Mm. The easiest analogy is somebody that has a challenging uh, that has that suffers addiction. They can't change behaviors until they accept that they are an addict. If they keep saying I am not an addict, I the behavior modifications that they try to make don't work Mm -hmm. because you're not actually accepting the self as it is. Mm -hmm. And so until they say, I am an addict, they can't really start to do the behavior modifications necessary to make different choices in their lives. For coaching, I think it's a very similar thing for a lot of us. We talk about becoming coaches, but it really is often by the time that we – have the aha or we pull we make the decision to take the leap or we start the side hustle or what, whatever the version of your coaching journey looks like mm-hmm. start the business whatever it's not that you're becoming a coach at that in that swing of the pendulum it's really about accepting that you are a coach and accepting to advertise that non literally figuratively to the world to yourself because coaching has become and is becoming a commodity but at the end of the day, to me, when you really boil it down, coaching is about helping people navigate change. Mm-hmm. And learning how to use yourself as an intervener, as an instrument to facilitate the change desired by somebody else. Mm. And so really, the, the, what we talk about becoming a coach, it's much more a journey, it's much more an ex- about acceptance of self than a developmental growth
0: of, of self. Thank you, because th- that, makes, that makes a ton of sense. But also, it hits on, I think you articulate it really well, of the acceptance of self. And really, that's the first place to start and for many people to start. And it seems very small. And it seems very trivial. But until you do that, it's everything else after that, either even if you you call yourself a coach and continue to coach and whatever that might be. Yeah, sure. And again, we're just using the word coach. Yeah, yeah. It necessarily won't feel or you believe you are possibly helping people or intervening in that time for them to help them change. So I don't know if we'll change the the name of the podcast to "How to Become an Intervener" instead of "How to Become a Coach."
1: <laughs> no, I would not suggest <laughs> that for for uh, your own popularity. I will distinguish this. You can develop coaching skills. Mm without being a coach really.
0: 100%.
1: Anybody can develop coaching skills. You don't need to internalize the I am a coach to be a coach. Yep. And so when we use the, I do want to use the word "develop" to say coaching skills, coaching mindset, coaching muscles can be developed, mm-hmm. right? What we're talking about here is that more intangible frame of identity of acceptance of value and of transfer of value from you as the coach to somebody else. And there's a reason why so many of our stories as coaches start with the realization of, oh, I'm the person that my friends call to yeah. when they have X, when they're at X kind of crucible. Or I'm the person who, as you said, gets in conversations with Uber drivers. Or I'm the person at work that people look to when situations get like Y, mm-hmm. right? That means that in all those situations, you were already – Practicing coaching, you just hadn't internalized the language. You weren't using the word "I am coach." Mm -hmm. The words "I am coach" to Mm -hmm. own your own value, but it was already there. And so that's where I want to make the distinction between there is value to developing skills, because even if you are coach, you still have to develop the baseline skills for you to be a good professional. Yeah. But we talk about becoming a coach that's really more a journey of self-acceptance accept the accept self acceptance and of accepting the value that you're already capable of transferring to somebody.
0: Shifting gears a little bit, when you were on that process for yourself and really in the beginning stages of finding your first clients, how did you get your first clients?
1: When I was talking about putting, you know, coming up with those two pagers uh, or that one pager that eventually became a one pager, I sent it to Pretty much everybody that I had an email for at that time, and I think one of the challenges of there are challenges and opportunities at each stage of the life cycle when you decide to make the leap. Mm. If you decide to make the leap when you're a little bit older, you have a more established network, you know more people. When you're younger, you're still developing your social capital, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I sent the emails that I had. I sent it to every. I sent that one pager to everybody, and. Mm. I called all my friends and I said, hey, I'm doing this. I'm leaving PwC hmm. to start my own business. It's a coaching business. And I had from that outreach effort, I had three people who said, when you're ready, I'm interested in working with you. And at that time, when I first started in those first few months, I said, great, I'm just starting. I'm not charging. Yeah. Let's just, I'm just interested in coaching right now. Let's do this. And so I had very interesting experiences with those first people who said yes to me, but it came from it came from just telling everybody shamelessly that I was doing it. Because part of saying to people what you're doing is really about you getting comfortable saying what you're doing. Yes. It's practice. It's like, it's exposure therapy. Mm-hmm. It's doing it over and over again so that it doesn't feel as icky or weird to say what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So that when the moment to when you when you start to find yourself in opportunities that become markers in your in building of your business you're ready to say what you need to say because you've been practicing you know accepting your own value so i worked with i think with two of those initial three we actually ended up working together one was free all the way through and continues to be one of my best referrals to this day that's awesome and we had a great uh, engagement and the other one we had a great engagement we had a bumpy beginning I think in the first or second session, this person, this client stood me up Mm. and I fired him. How did you do that? (laughs) Yeah, well, so I was like, listen, I waited a day. I was like, because it wasn't like a last minute reschedule. It was like I was sitting there for 30 minutes Uh, and then they called me and they're like, I'm coming. Yeah. And I said, listen, I totally respect, I I don't remember what I said, but the gist of it was like, I respect both of our times. Mm -hmm. Um, I really appreciate you being willing to try this. Um, I think it's best to leave this for another time when you feel like you have the space to commit mm. to something like this. The person was like, I get it. Thanks for putting it that way. Maybe not. Maybe that's what I'm saying to myself. But it was very amicable. We, I fired the client. Yeah. And then a couple of days later, or that's, I don't remember how much time passed, the person came back to me and said, "You know, I, I don't think I'm prioritizing this because I'm not paying you. And so my first opportunity charge was when somebody taught me the lesson of, there's a reason why free gym memberships don't work. yep. If you don't put your own skin in the game, you aren't going to prioritize it in your own life. And so at that time, I said, okay, well, what with that particular first client, I think I asked him, what would you need to pay to feel like you're like you have skin in the game? Mm-hmm. I think at that time it was uh, like fifty bucks a session or something like that. But even then, I still have the 12 session model that I use now then, and so it was twelve sessions at 50 bucks. And that was my first paying client. But honestly, the priceless lesson was I started charging right away after that because I realized that person taught me what somebody's willing to put in that they can put in correlates to the quality of experience that is possible.
0: I tell people that all the time about definitely valuing. It's two camps, but making sure you're getting out there, getting practice, developing those skills, pro bono clients is usually the easiest way to do that. But also... Most everybody getting to this you you've got food you got to put on the table you yeah you're wanting to do that too, but you also have value as a coach, and we were touching on those pieces and so and thus, you need to be charging at some point only just to make sure that the client has some skin in the game because they for many people or many of the clients that 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 we work with that our- listeners are working with that you're working with. This is the first time they're putting themselves or their careers in a higher priority. And so part of the decision and tools there is, all right, part of it is going to be paid. You said one interesting thing that I wanted to ask you about. You said, I sent a lot of these responses and I got some yeses, but I'm always interested because when I began my career coaching journey when I think I was 24, 25, and one of the first people I told was my sister. And the first thing she said to me was, Philip, I feel like you need to have a career before you start career coaching. Mm. And it devastated me mm. because my sister is somebody and still somebody whose opinion I hold very dear. But I was, I'm curious about the people who responded back to you who were like, "What you're leaving PwC, starting your own coaching business? What, and what are you doing? Like, that's, did you have responses like that? And if so, how did you deal with it?
1: I want to then ask you after I answer how you got over the the shock of what your sister said, yeah, um, yeah. it comes in tears. I have to say that I was generally, and this really isn't to put like a rosy color on it. I really was fortunate that the people whose support I cared about were very supportive.
0: Mm.
1: My partner now and we were in the beginning stages of our relationship then, and she was very supportive. My parents were when I told people at p w c I got better responses than I thought I would. I even had some people were like, who were like, it was lip service because when you leave, everybody, you know, a lot of people are, tell you they're going to do things that they don't actually end up helping you with. <laughs> yeah, but, yep. but I got a lot of like, oh, let me know what you need. Like, I'll, I'll do this. I'll do that. And then yeah. you leave, and they don't see you, and then you never hear from them again. Mm-hmm. That was kind of the more my first shock of like, I got really excited about those really early opportunities that I thought were going to be like my my fast track to skipping a lot of. I think it's important to contextualize. When I started my business in day zero, Mm -hmm. I thought it was going to take me one year. (laughs) It was going to take me one year to get to like six figures. Yeah, I was so sure that like if I was really slow, it would take me three. I was. (laughs) I mean, it's easy to laugh about that now, but yeah, I just had no idea what I was getting into, and I thought when those people were like when those early opportunities didn't pan out, I was like, oh, this is one of the most humbling lessons was like how hard it is to sell even how hard it is to sell a dollar of something to somebody. Yeah, I That to me to, still to this like continues to be one of the, the thing I had to develop the most that I did not have was a sales muscle. Hmm. But I'm sure friends behind my back were like, what are you doing? You're crazy. Generally, I had a lot of friends who were very supportive of at least the venture. I think I didn't get a lot of what are you doings in part because they didn't really get what I was doing. I think a lot yep. of people were, cons- but I I had more run-ins with strangers where like you'd be at a party or somebody would ask you and you tell them. And I remember this one interaction was with this woman in New York. She was an investment banker and she was like, what do you do? And I told her and she was like, at that time I was introducing myself as an executive coach. And she was like, well, what qualifies, you know, yeah. you you bump into these people who want to drill you on like what qual what are, what makes you qualified to have somebody pay you for something like this. Like most of us, the first few times that happens, I just kind of bumbled through it and just kind of said what I was doing. And I, I honestly don't even remember what I said back to her, but it was always uncomfortable. And you were always like, how do you share? Like, what are you up to or what you're doing? Cause you don't, you want to avoid those inner, mm-hmm. like the instinct is to not have them. Mm-hmm but there's really good lessons in them i mean you're you're not going to get like if somebody telling you one of the lessons i learned for myself was like if somebody questioning your value or what you do is enough to keep you from doing it then you then this is going to be a long hard road and and it might not be for you because you face a lot harder things than somebody not believing in you yep when people come and challenge you it's not i'll give you an example when i've moved a lot in my life and whenever you move and you tell people where you're going, people always tell you why they're not moving. <laughs> yeah. They'll be like, Oh, like, that'll be nice, but you know, like my kids have school here and we have a plumber mm-hmm. and like we like our plumber, you know, so it'd be hard to like go find another plumber. It's like I Plumber's didn't Plumber's the number you. one
0: reason why people stay places.
1: Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> I was like, Why I was like somebody but somebody said that to us when we moved last time. I was like Really? It's it's not about when people react in that way, it's not about you. Mm-hmm your behaviors are triggering something invisible in their own story, something invisible in what they're in their values in the schemata that they use to live their life. So it took me a while to learn that it wasn't about me at all, that they were actually just bouncing a conversation off of me Mm -hmm. back to themselves. And there were some situations with people who I was not close to, but who were close to my partner or people kind of, in the, in the orbit of my life who made things challenging. And that too was just something to learn, hmm. you know? Again, it's, you know, I, I'm curious to, to know for you how it was with somebody as close as your sister yeah. to you because that's very different. But there were some people whose rejection or perceived rejection I really took personally. In those early years, I think part of how that manifests in my behaviors is I really went for clients who did not speak my language and who I wanted to convert Yep. because conversions to me felt like the biggest way of proving quickly how high my value was. So I would go for people who were not ready for coaching or try to pitch companies for coaching programs who were the, probably now in hindsight, some of the most resistant companies to do something mm. like that because the conversion felt like that was, like that's what was gonna feel good. Like to convert somebody who was a non-believer into believing in coaching mm-hmm. was gonna somehow elevate my own value or my own belief and my own worth. And it took me a long time to realize, it took me probably three or four years serious, it took probably took me three to four years to realize that there was already people who spoke the language that I spoke who already wanted to work with me. And I spent too much time trying to convert people who didn't speak my language Instead of servicing the, the, the community and the people who already were saying, I want something like this for you. How did you manage
0: everything that you said? Right. Which is a lot of, I imagine was going on for her at that time was a, a conversation she was having internally, everything that you said. And what helped me the most is I was, and I still am, I'm doing this because I want to do this. And if that was the first roadblock, and I think in hindsight, looking back right now, that's probably the best thing that could have happened to me. Cause if that would have stopped me then I wouldn't be where I am now. And you're totally right. Cause it's happened in so many conversations. What, what does our career coach do? Wait, you're this old and you, you're trying to tell people this stuff. And I, I barely bring in my age, anything, because I, I yeah, genuinely sure. believe that at any stage, at any point in your life, whatever career you're in, everyone goes through these same things. So, it was less about an age thing to me. And that's what, at least how I felt about it at the time. And it was more about, is this something that you really want to do, Philip? Because there'll be tons more roadblocks and there'll be tons more roadblocks, not just from her, but from so many other people. And it took a little bit. I'm (laughs) not going to sit here and be like, Hey, it didn't like take me down for a month or even two months. But it so much about at the time when I, I felt like what, what I was wanting to do It was somewhat like a test. And I always think about it of the test. Like, do you really want this? Do you really want to do this? Because if you do, this is what it's going to be like. And if you're ready for it, then we're going ahead. But if not, get out now. It's you're early enough. You can do it. Yeah. So my final question for you. Oh, and one thing that you're mentioning too, when, when you're mentioning conversion, I imagine it's, or for our listeners here, we're talking about taking a potential client and then moving them to a paid client. But my final question. No, I actually oh, no. mean oh, by cool.
1: conversion, I mean more in the the way that we talk about religious conversion of like taking somebody that doesn't believe in your religion oh,
0: yeah. and making
1: them believe in what you believe. That's yeah. what I, I don't. I'm not talking about prospect to client. I'm actually talking about believing in conversion of those who don't believe in coaching
0: <sighs> to people who do believe in coaching. <laughs> That's an even harder conversion. <laughs>
1: um. And one of the things that I that really helped me change my mindset around that and was actually like, I think of audiences and markets in three circles. Your bullseye is a green circle, and that's the people who already speak your language. Then there's a second circle on the outside that's a yellow. And then an outer circle that's red. Mm -hmm. The reds are the people that don't believe in what you do. The greens are the people who already are are the audience that speak your language and that want to invest in what you do. Mm -hmm. And then there's people, there's a scatter plot in the yellow of some people who are closer to the red and some people who are closer to the green. Part of my business strategy over time is to grow my green by grabbing the people that are on the edge of the yellow and bringing them into the green Mm -hmm. and thereby shortening the gap between the green and the red. And I think that from a business perspective, too many of us spend too much time trying to sell whatever our audience's versions of people in the red or people in the yellow and not enough time with people in the green and people that are border yellow, border green.
0: Mm. I feel like this dovetails really well into my final question because I, I feel like there's been many lessons that, that you've learned, but if you had three months to start your business and get into coaching instead of the months or years that, you know, that we're talking about that it takes, what would you do? Three months.
1: Um, I'd have a hypothesis of who I think my audience, who I think my client is. Mm-hmm. And then I would understand where is my client, and this is purely from a business perspective, because I, I'm assuming here we've done the internal work of saying I am a coach, I'm gonna do this, and now we're talking business. So what's my hypothesis on who my client is? On a very weeds level, How where the money that my client is paying me, where is it coming from? Mm-hmm. Are these clients who are paying me from their paycheck to paycheck? Like when they pay me out of their pockets, does that mean that it's coming out of their discretionary spending? Mm. Or is my client paying me out of savings? Is it coming from the savings that they have put aside for X? Act- you need to know where the money that a client is paying you is is coming from, because that's going to impact a client's willingness to, to make that investment in you. Mm-hmm. Then you need to understand what is the price point that I can be the best at today. We get too tripped up when we start with how am I gonna be the best of the best and comparing where we start to the quality of skill and mastery that somebody that has 20 years ahead of us and the, what they charge. Yeah. And we start to see us as less valuable because we can't do what they do. But the clients that you start working with and that you're gonna start working with in, in those first three weeks, first month, first two months, They don't need you to be that person. They need you to be the best that they can afford. And so be the best coach at one. I always say like be the best coach at a dollar. Like your goal should be to be the best at whatever price point you choose is proportional to the value that you're giving somebody. And you have to accept that when somebody says yes to you, they know that you're already comfortable with the value that you're going to bring them. So, you don't need to bring the mass you don't need to bring the value of a master coach on on week four. You need to bring the value of where you are then to the audience and the client that you are looking to serve at that particular time. And then I think it's important to not spend time on the sexy parts. And by that, I mean we spend too much time on website. we spend too much time on yep. social media. yep, we spend too much time or coming up with social media strategy for the business. Mm-hmm. We come up with too much time on, you know, what my LinkedIn post for the week is going to be. There needs to be a parallel track between learning and doing. So you should be reading a lot. Yes. You should be studying a lot. Yes. But you should also be doing a lot. If you're stuck in like working on your business plan for those three weeks to get your business plan perfect for how you're going to launch your website in another two months after that you're going to spend two months building your website. You've already spent... 2 months and 3 weeks on the sexy stuff that feels makes you feel productive but is actually not what leads to a sustainable business. A sustainable business is in those first few years expanding the amount of people that that pay you for coaching who become your referrals so that you can stay in business long enough to make it to the years where you start to get non-referral clients. When you start to get clients because of the value that you've built in the the value of the of the brand and the value The perceived value that the market sees for your services, where people who don't know people that you've coached start coming to work with you because they already trust what you have started to put out there. So, the website and all the sexy stuff that's important. That's the fun stuff that comes in steps eight, nine through 10. Steps one through seven are really about understanding who your audience is going to be, how much you're going to charge for the services where you're starting, and then putting yourself in situations with people who can pay you that specific investment level where you are and just doing that over and over and over and over again so that you have money to go put into your website but i cannot stress enough we spend too much time on the sexy stuff that makes us feel productive and it's a false productivity the business the sustainable business comes from having predictable cash flow and so the big metric that like the goal should be to be able to survive feast and famine periods so that you can make it to the point where you have
0: sustainable cash flow for your business. I love it. Thank you for that. It's, I appreciate so much you just calling it out and letting people know these sexy parts. I have so many people come the web. I need to have a website first. I need to have a Facebook page first. All those things are BS. And I, that if you take away anything today, folks, it's the Be the best coach you can for whatever that value is so be the best one dollar coach if that's what what you're charging so on that note i very much appreciate your time alex thank you so much for coming on the uh how to become an intervener i'm sorry how to become a career coach (laughs) podcast i'm just kidding podcast and i very much appreciate you sharing more about your philosophy sharing your story but i think a lot of our listeners can learn more from what you shared when Really, those first stages in becoming starting your coaching business, becoming a coach, or really in those beginning processes, because often that's where the hardest part can be for some people, but it doesn't stop there. So, again, thank you very much, Alex, for coming on the podcast today. Would love to have you back anytime. Thanks for having me,
1: Philip. It's been awesome. I want to congratulate you guys for the operation that you guys have and for the awesome audience that you have. And if I left anything unsaid or unclear, I hope people feel free to reach out to me for clarification, for follow-up. You can check me on my website, com. Easy to Google me, find me, but uh, hope that this is the beginning of a friendship with you and your
0: program. Definitely. All right, folks, thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to How to Become a Career Coach. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast player. For more resources, go to becomeacareercoach.com.